The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion, author and business consultant to principal industrial leaders. Bruce Piasecki returns to In Discussion, talking to his latest work and declaration of those factors facing us today in a changing and severe world. His work over the last 30 years has culminated in many publications pointing to successive building strategies for a more sustainable world. My guest today returns to In Discussion talking to the changing perspective of a rapidly moving and adapting world where sustainability and frugality offer vital clues towards a secure future. His work as author and consultant to industrial leaders has led to a wider thinking in those areas of carbon emissions, industrial output and globalization. During a 30-year career, his books have provided new ways of approaching many challenges prevalent in our world today and indeed in all areas of life. His last book, The Surprising Solution, supplied strategies and inroads towards changing the ways in which we think, act and perform in everyday life. He's highly published with articles presenting greater ideas and solutions to the difficult era that we now see on our horizon. His latest work now underway further expands upon the frugality and change in economic principles demanded, where the examples of prolific people from the past act as reference in the pursuit of modern world strategies. Bruce Piasecki, welcome back to the program again. Hello, David, and thank you for your time. You are so welcome, Bruce. It's been so good to know that you're coming back to the program, and I hope that you are finding success in your journey. And just so our listeners are aware of this, obviously last time we were talking about The Surprising Solution, your book uh, that uh, talked about so many areas, sustainability, uh, charting and citing many corporate structures who had taken on board the need to look at greener principles and sustainability in globalized markets. Could you give me an update and our listeners an update of where you are today? Sure. Well, um, I'm happy to say that the surprising solution continues to extend its wings and move around the globe. Uh, less than two weeks ago, the largest business weekly in India uh, covered it. And I'm always stunned to realize that those newspapers have a larger readership and the New York Times, which I've always admired. So the work that we're doing on linking profit and loss leaders with sustainability um, concerns continues to grow as well. And on June 15th, uh, if your listeners are interested, uh, we have two CEOs talking about how they compete on sustainability to 22 chief sustainability officers and the firms range in size from you know the giant railroad companies CSX and CN to firms like Suncor Energy the largest energy company in Canada to the other members that you'll see at ahcgroup.com in our corporate affiliate section so both in theory the books and in practice 
we're finding that the world is moving uh, rapidly to a sustained attention on the issue of carbon and capital constraint. Essentially, what do you do if there's too much carbon in our energy products and our products, and what do you do if there's not enough capital to begin um, answering our next industrial needs? So th those are the things I'm devoting um, my group's time to focus on, David. Thank you for that, Bruce. And, and just following up on that, I looked at your brochure for the June 15th event, and I see that you are referring to the role of corporate strategy and chief sustainability officers. Is this a new role that has emerged recently? Yes, it is. Um, you know, um, corporations are malleable, and although they might have the density of clay, they do accept rebuffs and insults from the external world and get reshaped, like when a sculptor, say Rodin, takes his heavy thumb to the clay. And recently, many major corporations, from Hess to Aerojet, the aerospace giant, to my Warren Buffett client, Shaw Industries, agribusiness giants like Agrium, even Federal Express and Dow, they're all getting together in my hometown of Saratoga on June 15th to the 17th to compare notes about better aligning the mansion of corporate strategy with the needs of sustainability. And so, you know, the, the issue uh, always is that it's only natural, David, for firms to have a positive addiction to their product streams, their product families, the way they make their products. And that positive addiction is probably almost as difficult to realign or, or uh, reconfigure as the many negative addictions to tobacco or alcohol or to other things. Um, and so my theory has always been get together the people who are actually responsible for doing it and then have them share their lessons. And so that's what we're doing these three days in June. Now we have looked at personal and corporate responsibilities in achieving these goals of reducing uh, pollution, carbon emissions, and assisting in protecting our remaining natural resources. Is there an emphasis here now on the corporate leader that has to lead the individual on the street? Well, you know, um, what I've begun thinking about, David, is that I want to work in both spaces, so that in the books I try and create a landscape or uh, a storyline for individuals that are on a journey in their own life as readers to figure out their responsibility in relationship to their own life and the resources of the earth. Uh, when it comes to my firm, the AHC Group, you know, since 1981, we've been devoted to trying to influence and reshape the clay of the corporation. Now, the two things that both those entities have in common, a person's life, which is finite based on time, and a corporation, which sometimes can be infinite, like DuPont has reinvented it three times, can be longer than a life, it does have a need to exist on finite resources. So the two things that they share in common is, and I'm hoping we can talk about this today, is the nature of competition in a new world and also the nature of frugality. Um, since a life is short, 
I think many people understand how to spend that life. What is a well-spent life? Um, what is a life um, that is not wasted? Um, and that I'm sure all of us struggle with that. Yeah, you know, from Nietzsche um, to modern thinkers, we all struggle with the feature of being all too human and and not necessarily staying to task or staying focused. And so I'm writing a book right now that deals with competition and frugality. And I think that those are both related to the personal narrative of anyone's life and related to the corporate destiny of your firm. And it certainly affects us all on a global basis. And yes, let's certainly return to that. But if we may, can we look at globalization, a brief history of globalization, as in my notes to you, I talked about Columbus, the empirical domination that, that we saw over the, the centuries. Could I ask you to, to give me a short narrative on that period sure. for our listeners so that we can show them how our modern world has arrived to where it is now through these pioneers? Well, I think the first thing I should state is that the subject of world history is so large and so diverse that I hope your listeners um, forgive me and just understand that I'm a social historian and I I look at a piece of, of world history which is essentially limited in lens to the impact companies have on the earth, the rising impact they have, and what is the role of personal leadership in reshaping that impact. So I, I haven't, like um, the great world historian, say, Jared Diamond, um, I haven't looked at world history in as broad a lens as he has. And so, um, although I understand that your listeners are interested in the movement of people and in nationalism and that you have a sophisticated audience that's interested in politics and business and even the role of religion and social reform i kind of filter through all of that and look at it from the point of view of we have finite lives and we have finite resources and therefore what is leadership and what is enough in that context so it is true that in the last years of industrialism um, probably the last 200 years, but in particular the last 100 years of fossil fuel development, you know, such as the BP oil spill that were, is in the news right now. It all started pretty much in 1909 when Spindle Top, Texas, exploded. And in a primary way, people found black gold oil um, gushing out of the the earth of Texas. You know, now in the last hundred years, we've evolved to where people need to dig close to five thousand feet below the surface of oceans, like in the BP case, to find the oil. And so, what's interesting about social history is it's so much faster than world history. Essentially, the social history of industrialism, as you see it in petroleum is really only a hundred years old. It's it's only our grandparents um, that first knew of it. Before that, it was steam power and, and horsepower. And so the kind of history that I look at is much more modest in scope, is much more focused, but it is trying to look at a predicament, which I'd like to describe to you in a visual way. So 
I, I, I would just like to refer your listeners to reading or watching the video um, that uh, Gerard has done on guns, um, steel, and weapons. I mean, I think that's a broader view of world history than I'm capable of giving you. You are very led in your life. I think we possibly share the same passion here to following individuals like Lincoln and and uh, Franklin and Schumacher. I think possibly we are in a world now that demands that we do look back at the principles that they set. Um, one thing in, in the previous decades is that we certainly haven't learned from history. And in reading these works of these great men, it's becoming evident to me, certainly, that there's a lot to learn from them. How do you incorporate that into your into your writing, into your daily life and business? Because I think Thank there you. are some very important messages. Well, that's, that's one of the greatest questions I've ever gotten, David, because I do try to incorporate the works of Lincoln and Franklin and Schumacher and others that I would view as tribal leaders of the human condition, um, say, uh, Robert Heilbroner, who I've never met. But um, I read their works, and I think I incorporate it in three ways. I mean, some of these subjects could appear as dismal and, and bleak and depressing were it not for these great insights that Lincoln has. You know, for example, I was talking to my 13-year-old daughter the other day, and I said, Colette, you're going to spend four days in Montreal with 50 of your colleagues in the French club. That's wonderful because you're getting an exposure outside of the American view. But I said, you know, as you go there, I would like you to also think about this. You know, Abe Lincoln said that everybody has three names. And she paused and she said, I only have two names, Dad. And I said, no, if you think about it, you have your family name that I share with you, and you have your unique name, your first name, Colette. But in addition, Lincoln's right when he says there's the name that we make for ourselves as well, which is the whole idea of social respect and professional reputation. And so I don't think I could do the stuff I did with all of the kind of defeat and insult of every day were it not for these great writers. I mean, without a doubt, David, Reading Lincoln, reading Franklin empowers one to take risk, uh, to, to try and contribute, etc. The the other way in which I do it is I think a lot of readers appreciate the plain speak and common sense of Abe Lincoln or Ben Franklin or E.F. Schumacher. So I try and weave their tales into what I'm working on because I think what I'm working on is a world that's a lot more urgent regarding carbon and climate change, and a world in which I don't think E.F. Schumacher or Abe Lincoln could have imagined the scale of bankruptcies that we've experienced. I mean, just to put that number in perspective, you know, knowing how Abe Lincoln, I've read some economic histories about how he had to deal with the cost of the Civil War, which was absolutely breathtaking in terms of the loss of human life and the cost to the economy. That's really nothing compared to the fact that just in the last three years, when you add up, you know, maybe I should expand the horizon a little bit, when you add up what happened to the 91 billion of 
General Motors bankruptcy from June of '09 to the Enron bankruptcy of December '01 to you know the bankruptcies of Lehman Brothers, which was 691 billion in '08. Over one half of the entire U.S. economy's operating budget, which is 3.4 trillion, has been lost to bankruptcies, to the mismanagement of financial accounts. And so essentially what uh, President Obama has started last Thursday in, in talking about financial reform is very appropriate in my mind, um, very timely in the sense that it's trying to crack open what happens to the value when one half of the U.S. government's value, which everybody is saying is too big and too expensive and out of reach, when we lose that tax base. Um, and so the world that I'm working in could be very depressing, could be very dismal if you're looking at both carbon and capital constraints, were it not for human ingenuity, for human inventiveness, as evident by the Lincolns, Franklins, and Schumachers. So I, I use them every day, and I thank you for that question. Well, I, and I did ask it also to briefly examine the fall of a civilization. We don't want to go back really over the fall of the Roman Empire or any empire or the British Empire as, as, it, as it was so clear that they follow cyclical patterns. But this is why I always go back to people like Benjamin Franklin. You know, the, the great quotation, a great empire like a great cake is most easily diminished, diminished at the edges. <laughs> is there evidence here? in the banking system, in the bankruptcies that you're talking about, that there is a form of implosion in the United States, something that that is occurring from within. And given the situation, given that this is a global crisis, it's not something that allows America really to go out and borrow money from anybody else. Um, what, what is the nature in your mind of this implosion as, as it's occurring at the moment? And what are the remedies, taking away the concerns over sustainability and, and the environment, what, what are the real challenges here and what are the solutions to overcoming these, these issues? Another robust question in, in which I would say that I have faith that things are changing rapidly enough that we can address both the financial crisis, as I describe it in my book, The Surprising Solution, and the environmental or climate crisis. So let me tell you how I see it so that the new grounds for hope I'm describing appears neither idle nor imaginary. Um, if, if you think of the fact that with modern information technology and modern learning, um, we're about, as humans, uh, as civilized humans, about to come to understand that we all are in a shared boat at sea, I'm helping you visualize what, what I want to talk to you about when we get to Franklin and others. So if, if you go back in social history to 45,000 years ago, something happened in terms of history so that all the prior tinkerers of tools um, which you have evidence of 60,000 years ago, or you even have boat work 60,000 years ago. Something happened in the economic collective intelligence of humanity 45,000 years ago 
that it began to click and and that you know were it in Africa or Asia is twenty to sixty thousand years of evidence of agrarian agricultural tools um, something happened forty five thousand years ago that anthropologists are beginning to understand was special. I believe that's also happening in this world. Um, so that w- what we're beginning to see is even bigger than when the environmental movement started 40 years ago, when we looked at the blue spinning Earth from space, and Al Gore says that that was his turning point. I think if you scan most people, most of the six billion people on Earth, th- this is my faith, that they understand we're in a shared boat at sea. And they also have enough knowledge and information about technology that they know that the speed and force of the people propelling that boat at sea, each of us has kind of finite access to the oars. And I think what's new and very different than 45,000 years ago is that we understand that those oars or the things that are propelling our history forward are motorized, not really by human sweat, all the time, human muscle, but by human genius and by the grace and force of our genius. And so the question that is now being engineered by the debates over climate change and the debates over capital constraint is how fast should the boat go? If you have six billion people on the boat, how can they sit comfortably, safely, with the sanity of space between them on the boat. And and so we're we're about I believe to hit another 45,000 year special moment where the question of can we afford to go in circles in this boat? Can we allow ideologies of waste to be allowed? Uh, can we continue to idle the boat as we try and come up with perfect solutions. And so I think of these things, David, from that perspective. We, we are all sharing a role in a single boat at sea. I think I love this statement that you're making. I love the example. It reminds me of Jesus in the boat with the disciples. And, and Jesus is telling the disciples to hold firm retain your strength and keep your eyes on me and they survive and they become fearless because they have a leader and I'm only citing an an example but this is something that is applied to the leaders of industry today that people should be more confident in them in being able to figure out these huge challenges and figure out themselves to be able to communicate this abiding force, this collective force that we all have, all the way down the scale from the boardroom to the consumer. Absolutely. So, for example, David, I think it's a refreshing, it's a refreshing moment at sea, you know, where if you keep this metaphor of, of looking at only the empirical evidence, you know, uh, people at sea after a while feel the salt in their mouth and they feel the foam of that salt. They, they feel the sun drenched. Uh, but the breeze that's coming over 
has to do with something that's very different between the old world of Ben Franklin and the new world of someone like an E.F. Schumacher. And I'd like to talk with you about that for a minute, because in a way, Ben Franklin said everything we need to know to be citizens in the boat in a little essay called The Way to Wealth, which I'd like to explore with you. But what's different is Ben Franklin was only imagining a new world of America from the circle of Pennsylvania with the inventiveness of the whole new world in front of him. And so I think it's relevant. What I'm trying to do in my new book is look back to that product from 1758, uh, think about what's valuable about what it says about the weight and danger of debt, what it says about the power of savings, what it says about money, people, and rules, um, the things that are engineering, excuse me, the things that propel the boat have to be money and people and rules. And I am thinking about Ben Franklin in this new way because he was insightful and he was inventive and he was frugal and diplomatic. And I think the, the world needs to be reminded of him. But I also believe that um, your metaphor of holding firm and retaining your strength and moving forward, um, maybe one of the benefits we all have in, in your listening audience is that we can click on the Internet and find that exact passage from Jesus or all the passages I'm going to refer to and, about Ben Franklin and from you, the click of our home. You know, and I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, no, no. the interest to me is that I think that one looks at these great writers, these great people, these great politicians as ro romantic. I don't think they are. I think they have strong forces of information that applies as much as they did back in the 1750s as they do now. And somebody is going to call and somebody's probably going to correct me. But I can remember an Edward Gibbon statement, something like the winds and the waves are always on the side of the the ablest navigators. You, If you look back in time and you take Edward Gibbon, you take Benjamin Franklin, you take Lincoln, so many of their profound statements are as useful then as they are now. Um, and then, of course, yes, Schumacher... I know that you're well-read in Schumacher, and it was actually yourself last time that really started introducing me to Schumacher. And now you're talking about a philosophy, I suppose. And I noticed in Schumacher's, his wonderful book, where he talks about enoughness, where, yes. you, where you are appreciating the human needs and the limitations and, and the use of technology. And again, he was ahead of his time, was he not? I think he was. And what's really interesting to me about the difference between a Ben Franklin and an E.F. Schumacher, and, you know, what's wonderful about history is that you can try and glean the best from the best. But essentially, you know, when a Ben Franklin says something like, you know, Americans and your listening audience are right now preoccupied with the issue of taxes. You know, how can we survive in California with all the luxury and, and, and lifestyle without money in the government for Arnold? Or how, how can we do what Obama wants to do on the other side? Or how can the Tea Party people do what they want? Well, when Franklin says we are taxed twice as much by our idleness, three times as much by our pride, 
and four times as much by our folly. I I think he is hitting a nail on the head in a very wicked and insightful way. And I'm even willing to say that in his kind of 18th century prose, he's appearing holier than thou in the sense that... Uh, but he is saying something very special about all of us in this boat with carbon and capital constraints. If we can deal with our follies, political, ideological, if we could erase the kind of destructive pride, and if we could, in fact, avoid some idleness. Um, now, what's wonderful about E.F. Schumacher, in contrast, is that his tone is not holier than thou. He, he, even though he ran the British Coal Board during World War II and had his own successful companies, there was a kind of deep humility in Schumacher that I've tried to learn a lot from, because he really did understand that there is a beauty in smallness, there's a beauty in inventiveness, and there's a beauty in thinking about enoughness, as you said. So I actually try and find the best of the best when I'm working on a topic and think about their words and then say, okay, this guy's too wicked for our time, but this guy's just right for our time. And I think Schumacher's not 300 years old. He's only 35 years old from his great book. But I, I, I do intend to bring some readers back to his great work. Well, you know, Benjamin Franklin was so criticized over the centuries. That, uh, he was even cited in many articles, even up to the 1920s. And I think that was proving fear in those who criticized him as being so much on on track and, and accurate. And then, of course, with Schumacher, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but Schumacher really, he, he's very different from Franklin, but of course, Schumacher is actually blasting those notions that growth is good and that bigger is better. He's suggesting make it smaller, be more focused, have less empire-building ideas. How does that transfer over not only to Franklin's weight of wealth, how does that transfer over and how can that be compromised? In well, a, in a the way? first way is to begin thinking about creativity and satisfaction as you're pushing the oar in the boat as opposed to measured financial result. So let me give you a couple examples. Ben Franklin got me thinking when I came across his passage where he's talking about it's easier to own two stoves than to fuel them. And essentially, I believe it's very easy in industrial culture to have a second car, maybe even have that second car a Jaguar. It's very easy to assume you need a second home. I'd even be as outrageous to keep your listeners on their edge as to say that I believe in some cultures people think they need a second and third wife. But in the greater scheme of things, Franklin reminds us that it's easier to own all those things than it is to fuel them. Yes. Now, creativity is about making use of things, and creativity is about feeling the full satisfaction of that use. I think that E.F. Schumacher was very much in touch with that, and, and his attempt to get back to technology and economics with the human face he was not necessarily saying, a lot of people misunderstood him, he was not saying, when I brought him to the Cornell campus many years ago, and to my delight, he wasn't saying that he thought we could back down from industrialism or that we could back down from technology. I think he was like a wise man who had been up a long hill 
and as he was coming down the other side, he was saying, think now about what is enough. Think now about what the stroke is of the ore as you use the energy of your life. And perhaps it is easier to own the right amount of stuff rather than fueling, you know, I mean, to make it comic for a second, when I used to teach engineers at RPI, I used to have outside my office hour door a Lily Tomlin phrase that said, the trouble with the rat race is even when you win the race, you're still a rat. <laughs> and I think Schumacher and Franklin, even though they are kind of outrageous sometimes, very wicked in their writing, they are clever for the purpose of satisfaction. They're trying to break through all the perplexing stuff, all the unnecessary stuff, and making us sane again. Does this go back to the Founding Fathers, in so much they created a republic where people could be their own capitalists, use their own tools? Is that the sort of methodology that we should be looking at, infusing that into people's mindsets again? There's a lot of good in in that original Franklin and, and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay and James Madison type thinking. I mean, Franklin was the one who said that no nation was ever ruined by trade. And then Jefferson built on it many centuries, centuries later by saying that, you know, it's the art of commerce that creates peace. Um, not always true, but often. I would go so far as I think it's a very good development in modern politics. You're, you're listening again to an ex-lobbyist. It's a very good development that it's the Commerce Department of the U.S. that is now defining what sustainability is. They're holding sustainability summits. And I believe that many purebred environmentalists might feel that as the wolf is running the chicken hoop, or whatever it's called. But actually what's happening is that's the way to do it. The, the Commerce Department, as opposed to the regulators um, at EPA, could begin to help industry define what's success and what is enough. So in my new book, I'm writing about those developments, and I'm writing about how important it is to maintain your focus, as you said, and to maintain your use, but to avoid waste and to celebrate what is enough. Does this talk to the village-based economics that Schumacher suggests? Well, I and, wish and, 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 could, and, not, and not necessarily yeah. pointing towards a deglobalization, but yes. but necessarily well, for people to have a greater strength, a greater command of their local community. Does that have to start to avail now so that people can start thinking about their local communities again and applying their own gifts and their own talents to the local community. I like that thought, David, and I think it, it is very satisfying. And I have to admit that I haven't thought enough, I haven't thought enough about um, Schumacher's um, regional features of his economics. I was so seduced and so satisfied by his notions of economics with the human face and intermediate technology that to some extent, the regionalism of it, um, I may have undervalued in, in my thinking. Uh, I, you know, in my book, World Inc., and anybody on your readership can just go to worldincbook.com and get a lot of international debate on this. Um, there's a, a really good 
blog on worldinkbook.com about some of these issues. I, I, I have come to believe that the boat is one, that there will be segments of people, say, from Africa or Australia that have a special stroke on that boat and may offer a degree of inventiveness that you don't get because Australia understands water scarcity better than any region from what they've just gone through in the last 20 years. And perhaps Africa understands the rape of minerals better than anyone. So there will be, but it's one boat. And and so um, with information technology, we can share the lessons faster from the different regions. I'm happy to say that in my little firm, I just uh, hired for the first time a person from the Congo under this thinking um, in, the, in the sense that people who've lived their entire life in a region of restraint are going to have insights um, based on a Schumacher model where Schumacher says, you know, that people who learn how to go so far with so little are the source of invention. Those are the sorts of things I'm working on. Can we talk about the carbon issues now, the sustainability issues? I want to go back to Schumacher yet again, where he was quoted that fossil fuels or natural resources, instead of being treat, treated as expendable, should be treated as capital. Now, can you give me your take on that and how we can fulfill that? Sure. I, I think that E.F. Schumacher was at least 30 years ahead of his time. So when he's saying this in 1973... You know, and I'm 18 years old, and I'm reading it in his book, Small is Beautiful. Um, we hadn't yet experienced the BP spill of, of this year, or we hadn't yet mechanically realized the declining margins of surfactants and tertiary oil recovery. Shell, at $456 billion, hadn't really experienced the political pressure of limiting them off of Nigeria. There is so much in the great scheme of social history that's limiting fossil fuels that E.F. Schumacher didn't know about that it's quite amazing to see that he got to the essence anyway. And if, if you think of energy as a means or as a tool of use, what E.F. Schumacher wanted to do was to make you think of it as precious and alive and finite. And by connecting it to what we mean by the word capital, he was, in his way, trying to remind us of something that was precious and alive and finite, I believe. Where does the issue of carbon tax that is so talked about come into this argument? Sure. Um, since 1990, when I wrote my book, Simon and Schuster in search of environmental excellence. I have argued that um, some way to constrain carbon makes sense. So I have not been an opponent to cap and trade. I have not been an opponent to Lieberman's new bill with Kerry. I am disappointed that the Republican Graham has backed away from it. I was in Washington just a couple months ago trying to make sure that there was some Republican embodiment in, in the position that's now coming forward. But I, I do believe that regulation stabilizes markets, that regulation 
in the end enhances the better businesses and that I'm a little appalled, David, that the Chamber of Commerce of the U.S. was against progress on carbon. I think if you think about the recent waves of political activity, and again, I'm a former person that paid all my time on on that stuff, um, you know, an an incredible amount of waves have come in, health care reform, the beginning of financial reform. So the issue of carbon will be dealt with, in the first term of the Obama administration. But it will probably be dealt with politically in less um, ambitious ways than first thought. It's not going to be a carbon cap-and-trade system, um, but it will be based on renewable energy portfolios, massive infusion of billions of dollars into the energy infrastructure, and it will also be attacked on the front of energy efficiency. So. If any of your listeners want to get into the political reality, the real politic of it, just put in the words global climate change slash Kerry slash Lieberman, and I think you'll get some of the best political reasoning on that. I guess the biggest question here is how is a carbon tax going to affect the end consumer? Well, indeed, how will it affect the industrialized corporations, the, 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 the larger corporations, firstly, and how will they pass it on to the consumer? And furthermore, how will the consumer be able to handle that extra cost? I, I believe that um, there is a huge amount of waste in the system, um, that even if you analyze the units of discretionary spending of the average consumer, there is room to do what's necessary in society. So it's very similar to issues that I was intimately involved in in the 1980s when many in industry said that you could not improve hazardous waste management. In fact, my first two books were on that, Beyond Dumping and America's Future and Hazardous Waste Management. And that was during the time when I was in Washington practically every week looking at the laws and looking what could be done. And in the beginning, people said you can't take waste, particularly chlorinated industrial waste, from pits, ponds, and industrial lagoons. You just have to let it pile up on the ground. And then all the great firms, from Dow and DuPont, Celanese to others, showed that they had the technical will, once the political will was there, to treat rather than dump toxic waste. We will be in the same place when we come to agreements in the different industrial segments on carbon tax. Um, We do not need to dump as much carbon into the atmosphere as we think we do. Uh, And I think that the first that will find the answer are the utility sector, the oil patch, and probably next, the general energy sector. I think there's a wisdom in Lieberman and a wisdom in others in Washington right now to to not try and pass a comprehensive climate change bill, but they're going to segment it in industrial sectors, starting with the high-impact sectors, like, and then go to the transportation complexities and then go to the small-impact entities, so that the issue is so big and the impact on the end consumer requires so much um, information and education. But in the end, in hazardous waste management, it was less than a half of percent of the net operational cost of all industrial systems to prevent future love canals, to prevent 
future Rocky Mountain flats to prevent future significant pollution of national sacrifice zones. I believe that human ingenuity, human technology will allow us to do the same on carbon. Can we talk about technology for a while? Because as we near the end of the program, what I'd like to do is discover how individually and corporately we can all manage this. Where exactly, or can you give me a good definition of technology as it's appointed to this challenge for our listeners? The shape of technology in so much the the way that we're going to utilize it or the way that industry is going to utilize it to the very best effect. Yeah. I, I hate to sound repetitive, but in my mind, the most practical writers on technology have been people like Ben Franklin, um, Abe Lincoln, and E.F. Schumacher. To say something a little bit outrageous, but I hope you listeners appreciate it, if technology was only spoken about from the point of view of engineers and scientists, then we'd forget inventiveness because, you know, um, technology, if it's only about yield improvement, would always keep us on the treadmill of petroleum or on the treadmill of tobacco or on the treadmill of obsolete. We need policy, we need political will to tell us when the technology is a dead end, to force feed the obsolescence of an approach that's dated, like the dumping of hazardous waste. And so for me, technology is not an abstraction devoid of politics or devoid of market forces. So I think that the great politicians like Abe Lincoln or the great economists like E.F. Schumacher and even, you know, the great original creative forces like Ben Franklin have very good definitions of technology. And I used to try and teach that when I taught engineers because it's not about the machines. It's about the social context with which you allow those machines to work. This is really talking about that synergy between human need, our limitations, and and the proper use thereof of technology. That's right. Case in point, David, um, many of your friends, listeners, were probably stranded when the volcano uh, preempted some air travel. Um, I know that at least a dozen of my colleagues were held up. But there was a time when people, there's a great book out on it called Clipped Wings, when supersonic air transport was supposed to change the nature of the divide between North America and Europe, and that rather than having a five-hour divide, it would be two hours. I would like everybody on your listening audience to know that that technology to make it two hours has existed for more than 30 years. And yet, the social context of the machine didn't allow it. And for many good reasons. Um, The amount of people that would need to be displaced with the supersonic um, landing pad, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that I believe if you go back to the metaphor of all of us on a boat at sea, um, we are incredibly inventive but we're also given a finite set of human conditions. And so there would be superior technologies that can be reached, but that we don't necessarily need to reach them. Um, Thus, there's a lot of people in society very happily riding bicycles to work, um, 
even reporters from the New York Times I've met do that. Um, so once you begin to think about the question of enough, once you begin to think about the social context of our machines, you'll find out that humans are more satisfied with less than we have. And this is what Schumacher talks about, of course, with this philosophy of enoughness, which actually he later, I believe, termed Buddhist economics. And then, of course, Benjamin Franklin, and we talked about this before the program, stated money has never made man happy, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. Going that is a sickness that I think many people understand, the addiction of going for more. And there's a paradox there, David, because I think it's within the human psyche there is a need for some excess, but at, at which point does it become excessive? So, the, so, so, so this synergy that we're talking about here between the human need, the environmental problems that we face, the problems of modern economics very much lie in the human consciousness now on an individual and communitive level where money doesn't have to be the very first principle. It, it should be skills, skills and our, our own uh, careers, what we can actually provide to society ourselves, um, maybe based upon this village idea that Schumacher has, rather than constantly looking at, at money as being the be-all, end-all. I'm with you. If you look at money as being the end-all, then often in the quest for more money, people meet the sister of debt, and she runs really quite alongside of you. And, and that reminds me of the Franklin line about your creditor has authority over you, at his pleasure to derive you of your liberty because of your debts. And so when we begin to think about satisfaction and liberty and true freedom, it's we have an obligation to move the oar in our life, to move forward. But we don't have the obligation to waste uh, a lot of resources in the effort. So the way I would sum it up for your listeners is a very beautiful and very simple Franklin line that I've been thinking about for about 10 years now. You know, he's famous for saying a penny saved is a penny earned. And when I use that, I can see in people's eyes the idea, well, that's just a pile of pennies. They want more. But when you think about this one that he came up with, if you want to be wealthy, think of savings as much as earnings. Now, there is a profound statement, because having taught in MBAs for more than 10 years, we were mostly motivated by thinking about earnings, about profit margin, about maybe some debt to equity, the 10Ks and the 10Q and the financial statement we learned to scrutinize, forgot the wisdom of Franklin about thinking of savings as much as earnings. It's such a simple and powerful way to sum up our predicament on the boat. Well, of course, that also contextually talks about the art of frugality, because saving is about frugality, as are all the other ideas that we've talked about today. In the future, what are your thoughts about the use of frugality, both on the individual in the street 
and also the mindset that has to be adopted by that leader in the boardroom who has to lead the people all the way down through that scale, all the way from his boardroom, through his stakeholders, through his employees, and to the consumers. I think frugality is a source of satisfaction, and it is an obligation of leadership now. The uh, largest CEO in Israel, for instance, sells... Um, genetic drugs, and as the world was moving from less than half of genetics towards almost 72% now, he captured the majority of that market by being extremely frugal. His office is simple. When he buys failed companies and he has to inherit some jets with the failed company, he doesn't use the jets, or his leaders don't use the jets. He provides access to his customers to fly into his shops to see the quality production of the generic. Um, that's just a beautiful example of frugality. You can scale up. Once you understand frugality, you can scale up so that you have operations in Australia and the Congo and UK and, and Wall Street. Um, but there are smaller, smarter units rather than wasteful, inefficient ones. Now, you are currently working on a project and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give the name of your project out to the listeners, or, or, or can I go ahead and do that? No, I think if they just go to industryweek.com in June, you'll see an article called, for free, called The Art of Competitive Frugality. And I'm in the process of writing about the promise of competitive frugality, about the practice of competitive frugality by people like Warren Buffett, and about the limits of competitive frugality. So it's a four-part series. You can check out the first piece this June, I think this day, in industryweek.com. Your final thoughts for our listeners today, Bruce. It's been such a pleasure again. Your final thoughts about how you work as an author, um, how you utilize the great writings of amazing people in the past and what it is that you are offering in terms of the frugality argument and the way that we all have to consider where we have to go to today? Yeah, well, I'd like to qualify it by helping your listeners know that when it comes to buying books, I'm not frugal. Also, when it comes to visiting the great megacities of the world, and I have, I'm probably not. Um, you know, you can trace how many places Ben Franklin went to his life and by being a modern citizen, it's amazing how many we come to. So the way I would sum it up is with humility and say, I hope that your listeners engage me at bruce at ahcgroup.com. You might want to include some of my researchers like mark at ahcgroup.com or jonathan at ahcgroup.com or ashley at ahcgroup.com. But we are working in the space of some surprising solutions uh, they're based on natural human competitiveness, but they're also based on frugality and, and inventiveness. I enjoy our conversations, Bruce. It reminds me, finally, of Edward Gibbons' quote, the style of an author should be the image of his mind, but the choice and command of language is the fruit of exercise. I think that you have shared with us some amazing wealth 
of information that you gain from the past from these great people and, and that you're actually adapting, translating and putting into good effect for where we're sitting today in this world. Thanks, David. I think your show um, follows a similar journey and look forward to staying in touch. Bruce Piasecki, thanks for being with me today. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 